0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty – a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally and, importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Kevin Gallagher and Richard Cozzell-Wright to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Kevin is Professor of Global Development Policy and Director of the Global Development Policy Centre at Boston University, whose mission is to advance policy-relevant research for financial stability, human well-being, and the environment on a global scale. And Richard is Director of the Division on Globalisation and Development Strategies at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. He's worked at the UN in both New York and Geneva and published widely on economic issues. So thank you both for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks
0: for the invite. Excellent. So um, maybe just before we get into the meaty and uh, technical uh, questions around uh, Bretton Woods, can you uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about your uh, own background and uh, what what your your work focus generally is?
1: Well, uh, my name is Kevin Gallagher. Uh, I'm an economist and I direct the Global Development Policy Center here at Boston University. Our mission is to advance policy-oriented research on financial stability, human well-being, and environmental sustainability across the world. And we've been longtime fans and collaborators of UNCTAD. Uh, and I'll turn it over to my friend and colleague, Richard.
2: Yeah, my name is Richard kozal Wright. I'm the director of the Globalization and Development Strategies Division in UNCTAD, which is principally a research division looking at the various regional international challenges that obstruct developing countries in their efforts to forge uh, inclusive and sustainable development paths particular focus on the macroeconomic financial structural constraints that that the global economy throws at them and that require international action support to overcome those if we're going to find a more inclusive sustainable uh, options to, to the, the challenges
0: that we face. Yes, absolutely. At the outset, uh, maybe starting with you, Richard. Um, you know, clearly we're, we're still uh, in some kind of COVID world. Uh, we've got an invasion in, in, in Ukraine uh, and any number of other, uh, I guess, economic issues on the horizon with food prices and so forth. What is on your mind, particularly, and I'm, I'm more thinking of it from the environmental and sustainability side of things, which are part of what we just talked about.
2: Yeah, I mean, inevitably, the the impact of the conflict is now looming large, but and particularly the impact on developing countries. I mean, obviously, the the horrors of the war themselves and the damage that's causing in Ukraine is 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 a, an immediate issue. But beyond that, we're now. Experiencing the wider consequences of the war and the impact uh, of the of the response to the war on on developing countries, and that you know that's coming at a time when the COVID crisis is not over, as you said, uh, and and the COVID crisis exposed real divergences in the global economy, even as the world economy recovered last year. Uh, I began to recover last year, it was clear that we were on a kind of divergent growth path with the advanced economies having a lot of monetary and fiscal power to throw at the recovery, whereas many developing countries just didn't have that same kind of, 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 of option. So we were worried already about a diverging world economy um, the, uh, this time last year. And, and And the conflict is, I think, exaggerating that concern that we have I think on top of that because and Kevin will talk a little bit more about this maybe. I mean we've we've been working together on how you marry the traditional development challenges with the with the climate challenge. And, and there's a real concern I have I guess about how the war is crowding out the the concerns that were exposed in building after Glasgow. Um, about the about you know to some extent the lack of movement in the right direction in terms of responding to the climate to the climate crisis and um, and I think there's a real you know just a crude example the IPCC report that was launched at the end of February on on the adaptation challenge essentially got drowned out by the The by the by the what was happening in in Ukraine, you know, the fact that the two poles have now seen extreme rises in temperature that scientists say we've never seen before really got almost no attention in the in the media again because of the war. And I think, you know, that's a I mean, and there's understandable to some extent, there's understandable reasons for that, but but it's it's a real concern that that this how quickly this. The, the climate aspect has been put onto the back burner. So it's, it's very much trying, you know, we, what's on our radar screen is whether the international community can get back to the business of dealing with these combined development and climate challenges in a, in a, in a constructive and and, and timely fashion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Kevin.
1: Well, what's been keeping me up at night for almost 15 years is the the triple concern of the fact that our, our global economy is now highly finite, financially unstable, uh, unequal for people and unsustainable from a climate and environmental perspective. And that all of that is is really converging right now in the middle of this crisis once again, as it did during COVID. I think the one thing that I would add to, to Richard is that the sanctions, the interest rate rises in the United States, the increases in fuel, food and other commodity prices, uh, and the looming potential of a Russian default um, could could trigger a debt crisis in the developing world. We've already seen Sri Lanka uh, uh, get close to a tipping point uh, this week, uh, Mozambique, Egypt are countries that uh, that are on everyone's mind over this next couple of days. And One of the motivations for this book, even before the Russian invasion, even before uh, COVID, we actually wrote this right in the middle of COVID, um, is the lack of the international system to be able to respond to climate change and have the kinds of economic policies in place to help be a safety net for the world economy. And one of the core ones is the lack of a comprehensive way to deal with countries' debt problems. So in January... In January, before the Russian invasion, the World Bank sounded the alarm that that just the interest rate rises in the advanced economies could put up up to 60 countries over the cliff in terms of debt sustainability. Now, if you square that with our climate goals, uh, ourselves, uh, the United Nations and uh, World Bank have have estimated that. Uh, emerging market and developing countries need to mobilize in a stepwise fashion, 2 to 3% of GDP on an annual basis until 2030 to be able to reduce emissions by 45% and have a just transition towards uh, that new goal and invest in in adaptation. So if before the Russian invasion, you have the World Bank and the IMF, on the same page that there's 60 countries in the developing world that just an interest rate rise is going to tip their ability to be able to pay their international debts now, how are we going to mobilize the financing to be able to meet these goals? So one of the things that the world needs to do immediately is to get a sovereign debt restructuring plan together, reform the one that everyone admit failed during the G20, uh, what's called the common framework, and it has to be linked to climate action and development action. We can no longer think about these things as as on two different poles, because every new recovery dollar, and we need many more of them, uh, has to be a compounded recovery, transition, and inclusion dollar.
0: Right, right. That's a a big ask. I mean, when you uh, stack up the different uh, dimensions of the of the, the challenge, um, and it's not something that I've uh, spoken to people about on the podcast at all, the, the underlying uh, debt uh, and financial uh, problems associated with that, and if I understand correctly, the Ukraine had to make some uh, interest payments recently as well, um, in, in notwithstanding the, the the violent assault. So yes, I'd like to talk maybe a little bit about that in, in a moment. You, you just mentioned financial instability what does that look like and how does that impact um, thinking about what we do about climate
1: well the the international financial system has become inherently unstable there's there's been a major global financial crisis about every four or five years and and individual countries suffer from it uh, suffer from it all, all the time uh, it's 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 largely Uh, a function of when when things are going pretty well in the advanced economies and interest rates are low, lots of speculative finance goes into emerging market and developing countries. They raise, it it makes their exchange rates appreciate, they grow, which is good. Uh, And then they think they have lots of collateral to borrow even more. But then when something like this happens or interest rates have to go in another direction in advanced economies, that capital disappears from developed country, developing countries, goes back to the North and exchange rates depreciate and debt levels balloon in developing countries, which, uh, which causes these Sri Lankas, these Ecuadors, these Argentinas to, to snap. And so if you are trying to mobilize long-term development finance to transition your economy in a just and sustainable manner, these boom and bust cycles uh, get you started and make, make you go back another five years. It's like one step forward, two steps backward uh, over over and over again. And so this is what brought Richard and I together uh, a couple of years ago to say, this is starting to look a lot like the 1930s, where financial systems were inherently unstable where there was an incredible rise in inequality and a push towards right-wing populism across the world, especially in the developing developed economies. But one other big difference between uh, now and then was that there's also the climate crisis that you have countries that get these hurricanes and droughts that uh, wipe out their entire capital stock uh, in a way that in some cases is even worse than these capital flow cycles. And we said, gosh, uh, we could, Uh, Just like in the 1930s, you know, all that led to financial crisis, depression and war and a wonderful moment in history was a period in between 1941 and 1944 when the world was in the middle of war, where a whole new set of principles about how the world should organize itself and how it should deal with uh, the global economy was deliberated and established uh, finally at Bretton Woods to create a set of institutions to try to create prosperity and peace together. And we really said we need another moment like that in the world economy so that uh, so that the world can be more stable, more equal and more sustainable.
0: right right
2: yeah. I mean i would I just add to that so I mean because it's, I mean, it's not just a problem for developing or emerging economies, this highly financialized world um, has also seen a kind of, and it's a great irony, I guess, even as there seems to be more and more money uh, uh, flipping around the world, investment rates in the advanced economies themselves have been on a downward kind of trend, right? And and companies have become much more focused on on, on short-term uh financial decision-making than they have about uh, longer-term issues around capital formation. And we know that profits have become used extensively for dividend payments, for uh, share buybacks and asset appreciation rather than these Traditional kind of notions of, of 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 capital formation, and and it's one of the great ironies that the kind of big selling point of kind of financial liberalisation in the financial world was always it was going to be good for entrepreneurs and, and investment, and that just hasn't that just hasn't been the case. And I, I think obviously in the context of the challenge that Kevin mentioned at the beginning about the about the need to raise. Uh, overall investment rates, both uh, at the, in the developing and the developed world by two or three, four percentage points over the next uh, 10, 20, 25 years, then this this kind of short-termist kind of speculative bent uh, the, uh, based on the proliferation of a private credit, you know, is a real concern about being having a, having a kind of system in place that is able to make the kind of long-term difficult investments that surround both the mitigation challenge and the shift to new energy systems and new transportation systems, new ways of of producing food, um, as well as the adaptation problem, which is a particular problem and immediate problem for developing countries. Uh, The fact that we don't seem to have an investment environment that that is conducive to that has to be a a real concern in, in terms of, of whether we come to, to to meet this challenge full on and in, in a timely manner.
0: Yes, uh, very interesting. You talk about the the, the you know, proliferation. I sort uh, of financial capital, um, and and I'd be very interested in getting your thoughts on how you might you know discipline financial capital or what that might look like. But maybe just to uh, set the scene a little bit, um, uh, and and just to give it a little bit of an overview of what you think are a few of the key. Uh, important outcomes of, of Bretton Woods. Um, I mean, we've got the IMF, the World Bank, uh, also, I guess, a set of rules about how how the international uh, financial system operates. Um, and uh, yeah, it, just give it a little bit of a snapshot because obviously uh, it's, it's, we're not under the Bretton Woods uh, in, in some ways, but uh, these days, but uh, yeah, just maybe draw a little bit of a picture there.
1: Well, the system has collapsed. That's why we've come together to call for a Bretton Woods 2.0. But what was amazing is that that in a short period of time, sort of three sets of institutions to deal with the international financial system, to provide long-run development finance, and to govern the global trading system were by and large set around a set of principles around full employment, welfare, uh, policy autonomy, and interconnectedness. Um, and a set of rules that uh, that helped each country uh, focus on their own national priorities without their pursuit of that national priority infringing on another country's ability to be able to do so. Uh, one of the other core tenets of it, to get to your other question, was the regulation of capital. So the International Monetary Fund explicitly was one of the only things that the U.S. and the U.K. agreed on on some level. Uh, Explicitly said that trade should eventually be free, but financial flows need to serve these productive investments for employment, uh, and and long and long run growth. And to us, that's that's the part that's become unhinged. In 1980, the size of the world economy was about 10 trillion dollars, and the size of the uh, financial system was about 12 trillion dollars. You know, it was largely. At the same scale and largely financial systems were there to serve investments in factories and people and human capital and things of that nature. Now the world economy is increased by a factor of eight, it's about 80 trillion dollars. The financial system is increased by a factor of almost 30. The financial system is about 30, dollars in assets and liabilities around the world. But as Richard has noted, the level of actual investment in productive economic activity and employment has stayed at 20% of GDP from 1980 until the present. So we are creating these financials, the the financial system has become unhinged from its productive intermediary role that it has been set to play. One of the great things about Bretton was is they understood that the financial system had to be able to serve these longer term goals. But over time, because of, Uh, Some loopholes in in the agreements, uh, allowing for the the sort of the euro market to develop offshore, uh, which came back onshore, and then financial markets got really deregulated in the 1980s and the 1990s, and then in a big way uh, in the early 2000s, we now have a financial system that sort of feeds on itself and and a real economy, especially one that needs to be fundamentally transformed, being starved.
0: That's interesting because you're saying, you know, that the level of, uh, you know, in- that productive investment has remained the same, which I suppose, uh, uh, you know, all things being equal, is, is not great. Uh, you've got a growing population and needs in that way, but um, at the same time, if you're talking about, you know, the kinds of uh, eye popping uh, figures that are uh, being bandied around, that kind of investment to to you know for the green transition, um, that is uh, you know very problematic, and it I guess it taps into this idea that that Daniela Gabor talks about, uh, which is, you know, the the whole Wall Street consensus and the idea that um, uh, that there are large sums of of investment capital uh, that are available. And uh, this kind of model of the state that uh, I guess de-risks investment and, and tries to uh, incentivize the investments to in in the green economy generally uh, is taking place.
2: I think that's right, Fogel. I think that I and mean, I think Gabor's work in in this area is is particularly important. Yeah, I mean it you know, when you look back at the origins of Bretton Woods and the discussions that were taking place in the early 1940s, it is it's remarkable just how little influence the financial, the private financial actors had on the process, right? I mean, and that was a very conscious decision. By the international new dealers around Roosevelt, and to some extent the, the, the people around Keynes too, of their of their scepticism of of uh, private financial capital as a consequence of what they saw as the causes and, and consequences of the of the Great Depression. So, I mean, I I, I think at Bretton Woods uh, I think one banker. Was on the American team at, at Bretton Woods, and was some very traditional banker from Chicago who who was involved in f- funding agriculture and, and 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 certain types of commodities. I mean, it was a and and you know it was a very different kind of mindset that they they brought to the to the discussion. And and we, one thing we went back to, and and I, I think it's important for people to get a sense of of the kind of values and and ethos of the of the people that shaped the original discussions was was to go back to the presentation that Henry Morgenthau who was the US treasury secretary at the time and also the host of Bretton Woods of course and he had in in March of 45 he had to go and to the what what was then the House Banking and Currency Committee I guess it's changed its name since then but but uh, but it, it was then it was called the House Banking and Currency Committee that he had to present the outcome of Bretton Woods too, and get them to vote for it because the, the the you know the US system was such that the Congress had to endorse the outcome of Bretton Woods for it to become uh, operative. And and when you, you know, and he laid out three principles, I think. Uh, if you read that statement, and it's been a beautiful and very short statement that Morgenthau made. Uh, and he, and he set out a kind of three sets of principles that he saw as necessary for this kind of s- uh, stable secure and prosperous world that would not repeat repeat the the mistakes of the of the interwar period and and one of them was to avoid kind of importing deflationary pressures and the threat of beggar my neighbor policies you need certain types of mechanisms and disciplines to ensure that would not happen.
0: Sorry, can um, you explain why that would be a problem and what that actually is?
2: Well, yeah, I mean the the, the problem that the, the, the to avoid countries that would try and avoid uh, economic downturns uh, in their own country, whether by responding through protectionist. Uh, measures or or, or uh, 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 and, and cutting off the opportunity of countries to be able to continue to trade as a necessary vehicle of of, uh, of stability and, and and economic prosperity um to to uh to impose restrictive uh, uh domestic policy measures and in, uh, raise interest rates in the in the case of the uh, the united states that would have major ramifications for financial stability in other parts of the of, of the global system etc right so so the the point was not to respond to a a uh, financial shocks with deep with deflationary and tightening measures but to be able to overcome and make the adjustments in a more orderly and, and and stable fashion so that's what you want to do and 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 so and 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 that so that was necessary that was and and to do that you needed certain types of international mechanisms that would, would that would ensure that the more expansionary re- responses did not produce um uh, negative uh, uh uh, outcomes from from uh, financial markets. So, so this avoiding of what they call beggar my neighbour policies was was, uh, was central to the kind of design of the mechanisms at, at Bretton Woods. At the same and, and related to that, they wanted to ensure that countries, you know, had the necessary policy space to be able to pursue more expansionary re- responses to. Uh, economic shocks. So they, the, this idea of having policy space to be able to combine uh, economic growth with um, expansion of of uh, welfare state, full employment commitments, etc., would would be in place. And and they recognise that you couldn't, the financing of those of those kind of goals could not rely solely on private uh, capital flows, which, as Kevin pointed out, uh, tend to have a very pro-cyclical kind of dimension they they tend to be available when things are on the upside but when things when you enter difficult waters then the available capital tends to disappear very quickly so there's this kind of pro cyclical quality to a lot of private finance so you need international public finance to be able to ensure that the the in uh uh, there is a a stable a relatively stable climate to continue making productive investments to ensure that there's sufficient liquidity in the system uh, uh, that that uh, international trade can continue in a reasonably stable manner and 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 and, the, and, the, and I think the third element that people kind of forget about but it's kind of topical at the moment and it's interesting that it would be a United States uh, treasury secretary that that emphasized this point is that they didn't want to have the kind of big, powerful states to be able to discipline small, smaller, weaker states if, uh, to do the things that the big guys wanted them to do. That notion of kind of economic, what, what Morgenthau himself called economic bullying would not be uh, part of the international financial system because it tended to generate uh, uh, divergence and discontinuity in the system. So, so these kind of commitments to, to avoiding beggar my neighbor policies, ensuring that there was sufficient international public finance and, and, and avoiding um, uh, kind of in aggression or bullying by big states, were actually the principles that Morgenthau kind of outlined in his defense of the Bretton Woods outcome uh, in 1945 and I I guess uh, one of the things that I, myself and Kevin feel is that we've drifted we've drifted a very long way from that kind of that kind of world and those kinds of uh, uh principles. Yeah,
0: yeah, yes, yes, no, yes. very, very interesting. And um I want to talk about um some of the change some of the ways in which you, you think that the you know the international system should be reconfigured and so forth. But just to get a get a sense of context here, the suggestion is that this uh, you know Bretton Woods was a, a success uh and, and set in place for uh decades to come a a a system which which worked well I I guess um but I'm just wondering, to what extent the you talked about the bullying, uh, you know, reducing the possibility of bullying. To what extent was this primarily driven by American interests? The fact that they had the gold, as it were, um, what influence did that have on it? I mean, Bretton Woods, you know, uh, I guess, you know, worked. But are, are there criticisms that can be made about it as well? I mean, certainly in terms of the uh, countries from the Global South who, 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 who had quite a presence there, but actually maybe... Uh, wasn't reflected uh, their interests maybe so much in, in in the outcome, and just more generally, uh, I, I don't want to spend too long on that. But I'd be curious to get your thoughts there.
2: Look, we don't. I don't think we take a rose tinted view, Fergal, of the of the outcome. I, I mean, there were already changes afoot when Roosevelt died; Truman took over. The idea of a world trade a, a world trade organization that was touted and and agreed to. In Havana, in in 1947, that would be a, a complement to the to the uh, IMF and the World Bank was eventually um, ditched because the U.S. Congress would not vote in favour of the World Trade Organization at that point, and we were stuck with the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which was a much narrower kind of trade agenda than the one that was envisaged in the negotiations that came out of, of, of Bretton Woods. So, so there are were, there were already weaknesses in that system. And as you rightly said, although developing countries were very much uh, present at uh, Bretton Woods, I think there's a tendency just to assume that it was between the U.S. represented by Harry Dexter White and Morgenthau and John Maynard Keynes for the British and that somehow it was a duel between the arising hegemonic power of the United States and the declining colonial power of the United Kingdom. And whilst whilst the rise of the US is critical to this story, I think it does miss um, a lot of the detail out. And there's a great book by Eric hutton Helena called The Forgotten Origins of Bretton Woods that that really emphasises the way in which development issues were originally part of the system and somehow got lost in the second half of the 1940s as the world went into Cold War and and there were other pressures. But one of the things that certainly was a a perceived weakness was was the fact that it was a dollar-based system and the the privileged role of the United States was uh, always a concern for many of the the parties at Bretton Woods, that was certainly true of Keynes. And the danger that what was necessarily good for the United States and what was then domestic policy decisions in the, taken in the United States would not necessarily be the decisions and, 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 and that, that were good for the rest of the membership of the international financial system. And that that became increasingly obvious. In the 1960s, with the Vietnam War, with the inflationary pressures of of, of uh, U.S. budget and a growing uh, uh, balance of trade deficit that emerged from the mid-1960s in the U.S., and that began to put real strains on the system, and and, and that was one of the reasons, of course, why eventually Nixon took took um, the dollar off the off off, off gold in, in initially in 19 in in, the, in, in August of 1971
0: fascinating territory um and, and and really important um also thinking about the the uh the the importance of a transitional and, and uh, you know a capital for uh this transition but there is this i suppose question to begin with which is where will the money come from? And uh, I guess this idea of the developmental state, to some extent, uh, is around as well. And uh, this question of uh, the contemporary approach to financial markets or the, the, the importance and role of financial markets in general. Um, so I, I'm just wondering what are a few uh, key elements that you think would be important to be in a redesign shall we say of, of aspects of the financial system that would deal with some of these issues.
1: Well I think the core, the core of our book is that this shouldn't be about raising money it should be rewiring the financial system so that it serves our collective climate development and employment goals. And that was the triumph of the multilateral moment in Bretton Woods like Richard said went off in different directions by by the by the 1990s it was very detrimental for poor countries and by the 2000s it was detrimental for the whole world causing the biggest financial crisis since the great depression which shows that the whole thing has been unhinged but our trade, our trade rules need to serve these ends as do our financial system, so it shouldn't be about how do we raise taxes and how do we, uh, you know, create cr- squeeze more and more money out of a small amount of uh, economic activity. It is has to be how to redirect the financial and trading system towards uh, towards that end, and so part of it is uh, regulating private capital. Uh, and just le- just last week, one step in that right direction here in the U.S. is uh, the SEC is now going to mandate that uh, firms, um, or has proposed to mandate that that firms disclose all of the emissions related to uh, to all of their investments. Or financial firms do. There's conversations around this taxonomy in, in the European Union. We don't we don't think that those are strong enough, but those are the right conversations about how to make sure that capital goes towards our collective goals.
0: Yes, excellent, excellent. So um, you were saying that it's, it's more about, uh, it's less about raising the capital per se, than uh, rewiring, um, I'm not sure quite what the language you used was, but to what extent is, is there an issue? Because it does seem to be always framed, uh, the beginning of the discussion is just the scale, the, the amount of capital that's necessary, um, that's required in order for the green transition and then this question then becomes that you know where is the money going to come from and we can't expect states to pay and therefore and you go down a particular avenue and so forth um to to what extent um is this proliferation of investment capital itself um i guess symptomatic of of a, a failure should we say in the international financial monetary system uh post bretton woods
1: yeah that that that's our that's our our sort of fundamental point is that uh, that this conversation about the money not being there is if you're looking around at at starved government budgets and development banks and and green funds and things like that that uh, that haven't been capitalized enough to keep pace with the size of the world economy. Uh, one of the, the fundamental statistics that I said to you earlier is that the you know, the size of the world economy is $80 trillion, but the size of the financial system uh, is $300 trillion. So it's not that we need to find the money. We know exactly where it is. It's just going in the wrong direction. And the system needs to be rewired so that private capital has the incentive and is directed towards productive investments in adaptation in restructuring the fundamental energy matrix of the world economy and into people to make sure that they are in moving in and gaining, gaining livelihoods from a low carbon economy uh, in, into the future. And so that takes uh, a, re, a re-fundamental thinking of international trade rules. We show in our book, IMF uh, says it's about $500 billion worth of uh, uh, subsidies for fossil fuels. Uh, studies have shown that there's an implicit subsidy in the WTO of 500 to 800 billion each year in fossil fuels, which implicitly makes renewables more expensive, even though the price, is, uh, price has been going down. So the, the trade regime needs to be repivoted where these carbon bads need to have disincentives and
0: yeah that's I mean that's something that's quite interesting and I'd like to get your thoughts there both of you in a sense you, you mentioned the EU taxonomy um, but there does seem to be inherent in all of this this idea of incentivizing capital and less about punishing capital or should we say you know uh, changing the well, in terms of trade or at least the prices you know uh, one issue obviously uh, I mean the EU is, 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 is uh, a big driver here in this uh, you know, is including should we say gas and nuclear, and there's a whole question about that. But I suppose there is this question about the cost of capital, and, and I, I'm wondering also about the central banks here who play an important role as well uh, in terms of collateral and so forth, and you know, uh, penalizing. Uh, uh, or, or should we say changing the price of, of capital for uh, what you might call brown uh, investments and so forth. It, 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 is, it, is that the case, that there's a, more of an emphasis on the on the incentives? What needs to happen on the other side?
2: Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, you know, as Kevin said, one of the problems that, of this un, highly unregulated, highly short-term financial system is that this... It, huge increase in the levels of debt that we've seen since the 1980s have largely been about uh, financial institutions transacting with themselves finance has been created to uh, to fuel uh, this prolifer- unbelievable pro- pro- proliferation of uh, financial assets and rising prices of those assets and so so the question is how do we kind of use that leverage in a way that's more constructive our argument has long been that, you know, we need to get back to the business of employing public development banks, public banks of all kinds, to be able to use the the power of, of debt creation, which is a very powerful tool in, in in kind of wealth creation, but to turn that to a different set of investment priorities than the ones that we have now. And I think you're right, fergal I think the central bank's could play, and are to be quite honest, beginning to play, a much more uh, kind of constructive role in that respect. As, as you know, central banking has, over the last 20, 30 years, become essentially fixated with one goal, which is which is uh, uh, keeping inflation down. Inflation targeting has been the kind of singular. Uh, uh focus of much central banking over this period of time and that's a that's a break with the past. it's not how central banks used to operate they were much more engaged in regulatory and 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 uh, uh, investment uh, the investment climate and worried about full employment i mean after all, the federal Reserve actually has full employment as one of its targets but but you wouldn't really recognize that. Um, so I, I think that I think the greening of central banks that has begun i think is an important shift a lot of it as you rightly point out is still geared towards this kind of de-risking agenda that we don't think is the really the way. To frame the kind of financing challenge and we need to get much more into the nuts and bolts of public banking and the role of development banks and how we can ensure that these kinds of institutions have the have sufficient capital to make this kind of big investment push a, a realistic and credible option uh, not only for for advanced economies but also for developing countries i would just i would also just emphasize the importance of this subsidy question i think there was a study recently i can't quite remember who it was by that, but that estimated that if you look in total there's something like 1.8 trillion dollars go went into what they called environmentally destructive subsidies it wasn't just the subsidization of fossil fuels but it was subsidization of Agricultural practices that themselves are highly, uh, 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 the, uh, the highly toxic from an environmental point of view, and etc. And and ironically, that's the kind of number we're talking about. In terms, of that's about that's you know, one point eight trillion is what it's something like. It's between two and three percent of global GDP. So it's you know, the mon- is this weird thing. And you're right. Everyone says, "Well, where's the money for this?" Where's the money? It's not a problem. We have the resources to to tackle this problem. It's very much whether we have the political will and the economic mechanisms to be able to ensure that the the resources go to the right places rather than what we would argue are the wrong places, which is what is happening today.
1: There's really just three simple policy messages from this book. One, we need to align the private capital markets With our collective climate and development goals. Sometimes that's incentives, sometimes that's sticks. Two, we also need to align the international trading system so that the incentives, carrots and sticks again, for how goods are traded and moved around the world are also aligned with these goals. And then three, we need to catalyze what we call development finance, this public development finance, enlarge that and also let that lead. To prime the pump uh, as these, as the private sector and the trading system is, is starting to move into the right direction. And those that those are the three pillars of the of the international system under Bretton Woods. And we need a 21st century set of principles. Uh, of still full employment should be important. Investing in productive capacity should be important. But obviously now, one of the biggest global public goods that isn't being supplied is a stable climate.
0: Yes, very, very interesting. What what about institutions? Um, you know the institutional power uh, of of the IM. Well, of, I suppose of, of the World Bank and the IMF, but particularly. I guess over the in the post-war period the IMF taking the, the lead and, and having you know a bigger role to play maybe and 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 how that uh, then ended up uh, you know I guess what was originally called the Washington consensus but do we need uh, a, a new institution and also I'm just wondering about um, how one moves forward um, we talked to touch a little bit on power of uh, American uh, power uh, in, in the original Bretton Woods uh, to some extent Bringing the, the a representative group of you know finance leaders uh, around the table, which would represent, I, I guess, the the, the current uh, economic system, but also uh, to take into account the important role of the global south when it comes to climate.
2: Yeah, I mean, for obviously for us for, in the world that we inhabit in the UN, the governance question is is a big question. And, and obviously, I mean, you know, the, even if the US and the EU and other advanced economies really got it right from now, that probably would not be enough to deal with the climate problem. We, I mean, developing countries have to find a way of meeting their uh, development goals at the same time that, that they don't make the same mistake of the advanced economies of doing that with that carbon heavy development path so there's no way that we can solve this problem except collectively and of course you know the governance institutions particularly the financing it's more than the trade institutions really the the the, the finance the multilateral financial institutions are very heavily biased in favor of the advanced economies and creditors and you see that in the way in which the heads of these organizations are selected you see it in the way in which decision making is is uh, allocated and you see it in the distribution of the special drawing rights and the quota system that lies behind that so i think i think we have to be recognized that that there needs to be reform obviously china's rise as a major player i mean this dramatic rise of china has in a way disturbed the the old club but uh, i think i think you know it's disturbed it in a way that still hasn't found a new set of principles i think for governing the multilateral system in a more democratic way than than is the case at the moment so that that governance issue cannot it's it's pending and it remains i think a concern for us at least for our the, the people we work with who feel that these institutions continue to be too biased in favor of the interests and actions of, of advanced economies so i think i think i think that is a that is an obstacle whether we knew i i probably i mean this is a this is a big argument i know it's an argument that's ongoing about whether we need a new types of financing institutions that are specifically dedicated to the climate challenge uh, uh, rather than using the existing institutions multilateral fin- uh, development banks or, or the imF i i, I guess I, if i were i think we probably do actually need a new new types of institutions. one of the big fears that developing countries have and it's it's a genuine fear is that they the the climate issue will actually crowd out their long standing concerns about financing uh, to to overcome poverty and to build infrastructure and things that they still need to be able to enjoy
0: yeah can can you just elaborate a little bit there make explicit in what ways it's different the the questions facing india for example, or uh, Bangladesh, that might be a more extreme case. But even China itself, in terms of balancing uh, their economic development needs against the constraints that they're going to be facing in terms of green uh, transition and so forth. How, how dramatic is it? How challenging is it? It's.
2: I mean, I think it's always good. I mean, China has its own special
0: peculiarities.
2: Kevin might want to talk about that. They've done a lot of work on that, and it's always you know, it has peculiarities that that make it a different type of animal from other developing countries. Although we argue it remains a developing country, there's still half half a billion people that live on less than $2,000 a year. So, I mean, that's not a problem that European countries have had to deal with for a long, long time. Um, I mean, mobilizing resources on uh, and and we you know the the kind of resources that you need to put into infrastru- basic infrastructure development to fund the the emergence of of new industries you got to remember that most developing countries still a huge percentage of their labor force operates under what is called informal conditions the the, the the percentage of the workforce that is operating in formal factory you know factories with with well reasonably well defined rules and regulations about workplace practices and health and safety standards etc is is still is still very low you know i mean most m- most developing countries even middle income countries only 50% of their workforce is operating under those kind of formal conditions and you need you know basic investments both private and public to kind of raise 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 standards raise living standards raise regulatory standards improve capital uh, human capital uh, standards etc those have little to those those are not the same kind of problems as of as building a new energy system that is based on renewables rather than 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 uh, carbon uh, carbon-based fuels and so you know the worry, the worry, and it's a genuine worry, I think that a lot of developing country policymakers have, is that if they're forced to focus on the last of those things, of, of putting all the resources that can be mobilized domestically and externally into the climate side of that story, the other side of that story gets neglected. And they will argue very um, uh, vociferously that we cannot solve the climate challenge as a global problem on the back of their long-standing desire to raise living standards in their own countries. And, and that's a that's a real fear that they will be starved of resources, particularly international resources, uh, uh, of those traditional development goals. So part of our the work that we want to do and the work we do with Kevin is can you marry, can you find ways of, of, of meeting these climate goals at the same time as you provide resources For the for the long-standing elements of a healthy investment climate that raises living standards that diversifies their economy away from most of these economies remain heavily dependent on one or two commodities for their export earnings. It leaves them vulnerable. They need to yeah all those things they haven't gone away. I mean this is the problem. They they're still there. There's basic changes.
0: This book was written um, during COVID, as you say, and before the Ukrainian invasion. And uh, there are a couple of things I'm just interested to just see how they would change the way you see things or how you would see them playing out. And I suppose one of them is this question about, you know, uh, Russia being isolated, but then Russia maybe in China and Russia, China and India. I mean, I think Larry Fink, um, to quote, quote Larry Fink, I'm not sure, but anyway, to quote yesterday, uh, the Financial Times was uh, basically said the globalization is over. But uh, in terms of, you know, and, and then Russia's changing the, the payment system using rubles. And so there, there's something going on there and the idea of a You know, maybe the the uni. I mean, I guess what they call the dollar hegemony. The the, the use of the dollar globally. The idea that there might be two, you know, poles or two uh, spaces, as it were. uh, I I wonder uh, how, how that might change your thinking, or how you think that might impact things. Um, and uh, yeah, that, I think that's that, that's that's probably. And the other question, I, I'm just interested in, and I, I guess it, it's probably a whole, <laughs> it's a, a big area all in itself. But you know, the inflation which was building, I suppose, during COVID, uh, now you know gets exponential la- layers upon that uh, with with the kind of uh, challenges, uh, food prices, and so forth. And you know, moving into potentially, well, for however long, some kind of higher inflationary environment. Uh, what, what impacts might that have?
1: The current situation makes our concern and our proposal to the world even more salient now than it was a year and a half ago. Larry Fink is right. Uh, globalization is off the rails and it has been for 20 years. And we, we had a choice. We could have a new Bretton Woods moment uh, or we could a- allow things to get more and more polarized and the more rise of right wing populism and to bring the system down. And unfortunately, it's drifted towards the latter. And so we still think there is time, that there is time uh, in 1941, in the middle of a global conflict, there was world nations came together, built a set of principles for the 20th century and a set of rules and institutions to try to bring prosperity and peace in the 20th century. We need that kind of moment now. That's what this book is about. We need a Bretton Woods moment now to set a new set of principles that allow us all to pursue our development goals in a climate constrained way and to link development and climate change together. We don't see it as a major trade-off. If there are massive investments, if we redirect the financial system and the trade system and primed by catalyzed development finance, if it's done in an equitable manner, that it can bring prosperity and peace for the 21st century.
0: The paradigm is is really uh, market-driven. This what you're talking about is the the idea of the developmental, you know, priorities, the developmental banks, the developmental state, and so forth. Is that a long way away?
1: That's not what we're saying. We're not saying we're absolutely not that I think you're you're miscommunicating what we're saying. We're not saying get rid of the private market. Uh, is that markets should not be ends of themselves. Markets should be means to the ends. And that was the ethic. Uh, what many called embedded liberalism. Uh, We don't love the term that much, but that was the ethic of the Roosevelt era. It wasn't let's get rid of capitalism. It wasn't get rid of private markets. It was markets serve human ends. And now in the 21st century, markets need to serve human and planetary. Yes.
0: No, I I, I wasn't saying that. What I was, I, I guess, trying to suggest is it's a pretty embedded logic at the moment. And I'm just wondering how radical a change this what you're talking about is in terms of getting uh moving from the you know free flow of capital and its you know own agenda to serving the developmental needs.
1: There are seeds, uh there are seeds of, of positivism uh that I see all around the world economy now. They need to work faster, but there is something called the uh network for greening the financial system, which is a group of central banks from the south and the north that are starting out more like just trying to find out what the exposure of the banking system is to dirty industry and to more speculative stuff away from uh cleaner and more transfer transformational finance. Some of the more ambitious, uh, Central banks are thinking about actually re-rigging financial rules so that it goes towards the goods and not t- not towards the bads. That's a positive sign. I'm very encouraged by what's called the V20, which is should really be called the V55 because there's now 55 developing country finance ministers that are part of a global coalition that are put together that are calling for debt relief and link it towards. Uh, Climate change and development goals that are acting as a coalition at the IMF and at the World Bank and so forth to try to reform those institutions. That to me is a uh, positive. I, the the deliberations we're having around taxonomy and and hard SEC rules in the United States. They don't go far enough, but it's it's a it's a realization that the voluntary standards and the voluntary ESG kind of things that the financial sector has started to come up with over the past five years um, might've been good to experiment with in the late 1980s and 1990s, but now we've run out of time to see if voluntary efforts will get us there. We A report comes out every week about how ESG is, all, is 90% greenwashing. We can't afford that, right? We have eight years to reduce emissions by 45%. And we know they're going to go up in the next year and a half because we kicked the can down the road and didn't do this when we were supposed to. And so unfortunately, we have to keep the lights on and keep people in Europe warm with gas, coal, and oil. We have to have this crisis be the last time that we kick the can down the road and that we double down in investing in the future, or we're going to pay for it in the ways that we keep paying for it every couple of years in this century through financial crises, through right-wing populism, and through climate crises, uh, In whether it be fires in the United States, absolute hurricanes that wipe out the capital stock in, uh, in the Caribbean, uh, and droughts. That hurt African countries and their ability to uh, export uh, crops. Yeah.
0: You, their, you, uh, you uh, mentioned export. debt relief there. Um, just finally, um, how, how how important is that? How how likely is that? How how do you see the current conjecture, and 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 what do you think needs to happen to turn that into a reality?
1: Debt relief isn't a panacea, but it has to be part of a of a, a platform. We need lots of liquidity finance, short term finance for developing countries. The issue, more issuance of special drawing rights, uh, more redirecting of private capital markets to uh, uh, help get shorter uh, and cheaper finance to developing countries. Number one. Number two, we need more concessional finance and grants to developing countries, so that this is the concessional wings of things like the International Development Association uh, and grants through aid. And number three, we need debt relief. Uh, countries need. Even with new financing, even if it's cheaper, some countries, World Bank estimates could be upwards of 60 to 70, uh, are going to need some serious debt relief. There was a debt program put together by the G20 during COVID called the Common Framework. Unfortunately, uh, we'll give them a point for realizing how how important it was. Unfortunately, it's now universally seen as an absolute failure. Only three countries. Uh, Chad, Ethiopia and Zambia uh, went in to try to work it out, but uh, there are two big, huge problems with it. Uh, One, the private sector and commercial sector around the world did not play and weren't, com- weren't compulsorily part of the regime. And two, the outcomes were not linked to climate and development goals. It was really just how to give a country a little bit more breathing room to be able to go back to business as usual. Uh, I'm part of a proposal that says that this has to be linked together. We need to reform the IMF, excuse me, the G20's common framework for immediate relief right now. So countries get immediate relief, but that relief is linked to a, green and inclusive recovery, and UMTAD has always been at the at the head of saying that we need a more permanent regime, a treaty-based regime that allows countries to work out their debts in a manner that is uh, inclusive for their economies and good for climate change that is part of the international architecture. It's perhaps one of the most glaring goals in the architecture right now.
2: Yeah, I, I think for, you know, developing countries pay in something in the order of a trillion dollars a year to service their debts and 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 they can't i don't i think it's unrealistic to expect many of them to 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 spend the kind of resources that are required to service debts and at the same time jack up the kinds of investments that they need to meet the sustainable development goals including the climate the climate goals, which is why I, I think I think we have to acknowledge that if we're going to do all these things, if we're going to achieve the kind of stability and inclusiveness that that is implied in this agenda, some some way of 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 dealing with this burden of debt is going to have to uh, uh, appear and we we are as kevin said we think we need we don't think you can leave that to the creditors and ultimately the imf and the world bank are creditors you need a more independent institution that that can bring together creditors and debtors in a in a timely and, and reasonable manner it can bring both public and private uh, uh, um, uh lenders together and and, and and share the burden of excessive indebtedness in a way that can kind of get us onto a more stable uh, growth path and a more and a more uh, you know climate friendly growth path. I I can I, I, I cannot imagine dealing with these multiple problems in a world that has the levels of external debt that we see today. And
0: I just if certainly for developing countries, that's not, it's just not going to happen. Right, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, a, a rich and uh, a very uh, complex uh, area. We touched on some some really important uh, topics, and I know we could talk about this uh, for a, a lot longer, but I really appreciate your time today and the important work you're doing. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the sustainability agenda.
2: Virgil, thanks. Thanks for the invite. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much,
1: Virgil.
0: Green finance is increasingly presented as a crucial way to address climate change and biodiversity laws. Yet more often than not, financial alchemy is used to obfuscate and repackage dirty activities, which are then rebranded as green, thus maintaining the status quo. The Green Finance Observatory is an independent NGO whose mission is to analyse and decrypt these new financial markets based on pollution and nature's destruction. If you feel it is important to identify and debunk false green finance claims, fight climate change profiteering and other carbon finance mercenaries, please go to greenfinanceobservatory.org where you can support its work. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.